Hello and welcome to the Investors Chronicle Companies and Market Show. I am joined today once again by Phil Oakley. How are you doing, Phil? Very good, thank you. Just you and me today again. Again, yeah. Excellent. Uh, well, you've written a, a very interesting column this week, which we're going to focus on. It's actually very relevant in the context of uh, this week's lead feature, which is bargain shares. Uh, Simon Thompson's annual trawl of the market for um, for uh, shares that meet his Ben Graham based tests and we're not going to talk about those you can read those in the magazine um what what simon's actually come up with but it's very interesting in in the context of what you've written because you've written about whether the stock picking techniques of some of the greats still work obviously we're focusing on the great warren buffett and he himself was a was once a ben graham inspired investor so phil let's uh let's kind of talk about your your kind of thesis here be, uh, being a Buffett, how easy is it for a private investor to do? I mean, the short answer is not very easy, um, in my in my opinion. I think you're right, but we'll, uh, we'll come to why I think that. And I think, you know, you look at, there are sort of three phases of, three different approaches of, of, of Warren Buffett investing from how I sort of view it. Is it like the three three ages of Elvis from uh, Father Ted? <laughs> I'm not familiar with that work. <laughs> but um, you have the sort of, you know, he started off as a, you know, a deep value investor. Graham. Yeah, he was, he's, he's Graham's most famous student. And... For quite some time, you know, set up his partnership in 1956, closed it down in 1969. Most of the gains that he made were coming from buying the sort of Graham-type stocks, which were the kind of stocks that were statistically very, very cheap relative to the numbers in the financial statements. There wasn't a lot of business analysis going on. It was essentially a statistical approach where the valuation of the shares compared to assets or earnings was so low that the chances of losing money was deemed to be low and the chances of making money was deemed to be better. And, and, and uh, I mean, I quote your, your piece, Graham's philosophy was based first and foremost on not, lose, not losing money. Yeah, I mean, that, and that came out of the, you know, the Great Depression where, and, and the Wall Street crash and how investors lost huge amounts of money. And, and Graham lost a lot of money in, in, during that time. And his approach spun out of that experience of this whole thing called, you know, the insisting on something called the margin of safety, a protective buffer, where you buy, buy a stock where the odds are heavily in your favour, that if you get your judgment wrong about a company, your downside risk is very limited. If you get it right, and there's either through a catalyst or just through an improvement in the underlying business, the upside or the re-rating of the business upwards allows you to make a nice gain. You, you, you say judgment, but but you also mentioned that this this was a very mechanical, statistics-driven process. It was, and Graham used to own lots and lots of shares. It wasn't a concentrated bet. He would buy dozens maybe hundreds of shares that met this criteria which tells you a lot of things about the markets at that time as well you know they weren't as extensively covered as the, by analysts and fund managers so, as they are now so lots of opportunities for yeah. serious mispricing absolutely yeah you know there was there's huge amounts of mispricing obviously as this technique 
became successful, became more popular. Essentially, it got competed away because more and more people started copying it. And that was essentially the reason that Buffett gave for pretty much giving up this approach in 1969 because he said, look, I just can't find anything to make money. But before then, his, his thinking about investing had begun to change through the influences of Philip Fisher, who's written, who wrote, written a, you know, a classic best-selling, Common Stocks and Common Profits. It's one of the first books I read, actually. And it's a on, very, uh, very good book, actually. Very good book. Yeah, I mean, I, actually, I mean, a little bit of a tangent. The thing I loved about that was the, the whole scuttlebutt idea. Yeah. But, uh, but you know, we, I think the scu- word scuttlebutt is used quite loosely now to kind of you know, invest about, uh, on the basis of what you see around you. But, but Philip Fisher's approach was very methodical. I mean, it was interrogating the supply chain. That Get, po- yeah. going, going much, well, it's basically about, what a hedge fund might do now. Yeah, it's about knowing what you want to own and knowing what you own and getting you know, a real grip on how a business actually works mm. um, and then insisting on you know, various quality criteria of growth, the ability to grow, the predictability of growth, high levels of profitability, low levels of debt. Cash flow wasn't really discuss- discussed back then. So certainly profit margins, return on equity more than return on capital. Um, management, big feature on management about being honest, having a good strategy. Um, and essentially, it was his influence, Philip Fisher's influence, and then Charlie Munger who bought into this approach as well, which led to the sort of whole philosophy of which can be summed up in the phrase that's been churned out hundreds of times, thousands of times, millions of times probably, it is better to buy a great company at a fair price than a fair company at a great price. Indeed. Indeed. Because, because one of the big problems with the Ben Graham type of investing um, is that they cheap. If it works, they go from cheap to fairly valued, and then there's nothing more. Hence why they were called cigar butts. They were companies which had one last puff in them, one la- like a cigar with one last puff. So you can make a little bit of money quite quickly as the market recognises that, that, that the company's a bit bit better than, than it was previously thought. Yeah. But beyond that, there's nothing left. Yeah, so then you have to go and find another one. Now, the difference with the quality approach, the Philip Fisher approach, is that these are companies that could keep on delivering they grow they could grow their sales they could grow their profits they could then reinvest and this is where the whole sort of snowball effect or the compound interest effect which is essentially the way that buffett invests um comes into play and first that is done through the the ownership of stocks and then sort of from the late 60s, early 70s, obviously you get the buying of Berkshire Hathaway, which was a textile company that was on its knees and was used as a shell. But then you get from the sort of early 70s, so you get two phases of Warren Buffett going forward from the early 70s is buying companies outright, so like the Washington Post, Seas Candies was another another one. And then you get the investment in high-quality companies at decent prices. American Express is the one that's made him a lot of money over the years, and that that was picked up 
uh, when American Express got involved in some kind of or related to some kind of scandal for selling salad oil. It was known as the salad oil scandal. And American Express's shares plummeted. And Buffett went and did the scuttlebutt and he realised that people were still using American Express cards. And American Express ticked a lot of boxes in terms of profitability, predictability, simple, easy to understand. And he bought and he holds that stock to this day. But but if you look at Berkshire Hathaway now, um, yes, there are still investments in publicly quoted stocks. Apple, for one, is one that Berkshire have been buying recently. But essentially, Buffett's return now is coming from, or a large chunk of it is coming from the ownership of businesses outright, which is something that the vast majority of private investors cannot do. Indeed. And, and, you know, this is something that has always struck me about Warren Buffett's success is that, that, and in fact, there was one acquisition in particular, which was an insurance company that he made very early on in this process, which gave him a lot of money to invest and to, and to be able to buy companies outright. Yeah. And if you look at Berkshire Hathaway now, it's a lot of companies that he owns 100%. Yeah. Um, but you see, the benefit of that, I mean, I'll give you a very simple example, which I've, I sort of use. And, and this, is, this is why Buffett, you ha- I think you have to be slightly cautious when you look at Buffett's return in terms of book value per share. The progression is at the front page of the Berkshire Hathaway annual report. It shows the growth in Berkshire Hathaway book value per share against the S&P 500. And one of the great helps in any investing performance long term is how you perform in bear markets. Because in bear markets, by protecting the downside, you might underperform in bull markets, but because you don't lose as much in bear markets, your long-term track record tends to be better than most people's by, by protecting the downside. And by owning companies outright, Buffett protects the downside. I'll give you a very, hopefully, easy, simple example to, 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 um, to demonstrate this. Let's say you buy a company on 10 times earnings. So if you buy that company outright, your return is 10% if you just turn it around and get the earnings yield. That's 10%. So I get 10% return owning that business outright. If I buy a stock on a P of 10 and the shares go down, I can have a significant negative return, which means that in a bear market, because a 10% return on investment is seen as decent enough to justify the carrying value of that share in the balance sheet, the net asset value, I'm outperforming and I'm outperforming massively. But I underperform in a bear mar- in a bull market when share prices are better than business results or grow faster than business results. And this is the one this is this is essentially not a criticism of Warren Buffett. It's actually the complete opposite. It shows that he has adopted to business ownership outright and he gets the the 100% business return rather than than relying on the stock market, which means that his returns are less volatile and he can take a long-term patient view, which very few fund, fund managers or professional investors have the temperament or the ability to do. Private equity, Ken. You may argue. Uh, I would argue against that because I think that private equity gets 
a lot of its return on on based on the price that it sells for, which is largely to the stock market. And I, I think that pri- private equity returns are heavily determined by the exit price in terms of the internal internal rate of return, rather than sticking with a business forever and just compounding the improving business returns of that business. It's interesting. You, you, you might conclude from that that private equity may think about taking a more Buffett-like approach rather than the, the flipping approach that they, they take at the moment. They but. can't because they've got to pay their investors out. Mm. And Buffett is his own investor. Well, obviously he has shareholders, but you know it's very clear when you buy a share in Berkshire Hathaway that you're not going to get paid a dividend. Mm. That the whole the whole process is of taking the returns of a business and then reinvesting it, hopefully either in, within that existing business or finding a new business to buy. So, so there are lots of books that that try and teach people how to be like Buffett, and and I guess what we're saying here is you can't, you you can't. Um, but you, the, you, go you, on. Sorry, sorry. Yeah, you can, you can to an extent, and I think. While some people will disagree with me, and we had this conversation before we came on air about Net Nets and Graham, I think Net Nets and Graham are very difficult to buy successfully. So, so what I was going to say was, you know, you can't buy businesses outright. Can't buy business- short, short of buying into Berkshire Hathaway, which I think is a you can, you can do. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the the two approaches that he has used throughout his career, the Graham approach, the Philip Fisher approach. How can we can we still do that? The can Philip still- Fisher approach. Is where where it, uh, that's the way that the private investor can go, and you know there are fund managers out there: Terry Smith, Nick Train, Keith Ashworth Lord, who has a UK Buffettology fund, which tends they're tra- that's what they're trying to do. And there's a section in the article where I sort of list a you know a selection of shares that might fit that criteria. The problem is. And this is this is the thing that the other thing to add, just to go off on a tangent. There are two things from Graham that Buffett has always stuck to, and that is insisting on a margin of safety, and also using the fluctuations of the of the stock market to to his advantage. And that's what everyone can still do. Chapters eight and twenty in the Intelligent Investor, by the way. That's that's what which, that, you, which you reread, which I reread. Yeah, um, the problem, the problem, I think, for the you know following this quality approach, and obviously this is hotly debated, um, particularly by those who follow this approach or ha- or have to follow this approach. My view is that the price that people are being asked to pay for these kind of shares perhaps doesn't offer the val- enough margin of safety. Valuation ratings on a lot of these highly profitable, predictable, excellent companies has been bid up very, very highly because of low interest rates. So, so essentially, in exactly the same way that Buffett was forced out of the Graham approach because the market wised up to it, yeah, that the, the quality Philip Fisher approach, the same thing has happened. Indeed, and if you look at and if you look at Buffett's behaviour over the last twelve, eighteen months, two years, he's not he's not really spending money the cash pile of Berkshire Hathaway is getting bigger and bigger he he's not you know the last thing he really thing he really tried to get involved with buying was Unilever and um well they've had some results indeed today and since since then he's kept his hands in his pocket which I think is to me is a kind of sign that valuations for these kind of stocks are a bit 
bit too high. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean, we could talk about a couple of them. Um, I mean, you, you mentioned Unilever. Yeah, we've seen their results today. Not not that great. I, I, I quite like Unilever as a business. Well, it's a, it's great. I mean, it's a quality business, but but to, maybe we're asking too much of it. But it's it's a big elephant, and you know, it's very very hard to move the dials on these big companies. And essentially, Unilever's strategy is a is a defensive one. It's Warren Buffett and his friends came along and bid for it. And they were going to adopt some very aggressive cost-based measures, zero, zero, uh, is it zero base bus budgeting or zero cost budgeting, where you basically start at zero every year and you think very carefully how you spend money and you can enhance the profit margins that way. Unilever's taken that kind of strategy on. So the story is about turning Unilever into being even more profitable than it is already. And that is essentially being done by by cost-cutting, and they're trying to do it by growing sales. And it's the sales bit which has come out today, which is probably going to disappoint people. Then it's, it's organic sales growth is they've set a target of 3 to, three to 5% for the next two, three years, and it's going to be at the lower end of that range. And it just shows how tough it is for these big quality consumer giants to actually deliver meaningful quality growth and that by that sales-based growth not cost-cutting growth mm. you know these companies that they're quite richly valued by the stock market because of their predictability because they're selling stuff that people stick in their supermarket trolleys week after week and they can churn out reliable profits. That's fine, but without growth, you start questioning the the rationale. And I think did, did they say what's dragging on their growth? I mean, is it is it you know substitution to, to the own brand stuff, which we've heard about for years? But they seem to have defied somehow. I think they've got a very good portfolio, uh, particularly things like beauty products, even things like you know the ice cream portfolio. Oh, so Ben and Jerry's. Yeah, Ben and Jerry's, yeah, Cart Door, um, Magnum, that yeah. kind of thing. It's it's pretty good. It's it's a kind of thing that there isn't a lot of substitution. It's not like, you know, substituting Neurofen that Wreck It Bank Keys are by for a supermarket owned label for like a tenth of the price. So there is some defensiveness there. There is some, and also there's a very significant emerging market exposure there and that's coming through in the results asia is very strong and about 60 percent of the sales are emerging market and only really argentina where there's hyperinflation is the real problem with emerging markets the problem is in developed markets in europe and north america it's very hard for the company to grow Mm -hmm. and um the fourth quarter has been pretty disappointing particularly in uh the food food and ice cream business uh, there hasn't been a lot of underlying growth there and uh, going forward the underlying growth is going to be sort of towards the three percent rather than the five percent which is not really much more than you know inflation yeah should we look at the second company on the list of uh, quality shares that you've presented in this feature which is diageo yeah they've also had some numbers out today yeah and you like those yeah i like diageo i think it's got a lot of 
robust characteristics very difficult you know to, we had the discussion this morning about spirits and and you know you look at their brand portfolio if you want to replicate premium scotch you've got to lay it down for 12 years you've got to have a lot of distribution you've got to have a lot of marketing and diageo has built up an enviable portfolio of premium branded spirits and obviously there's got the guinness beer there as well this is working very well if you look at the underlying growth in this business this is this is a business this morning that's come out and said it's growing at seven and a half percent organic is that volumes or value it's about three and a half it's three and a half percent volume four percent price so it's got some pricing power as yeah, well both both is good. and the profits are going up the margins are going up the cash generation is good and this business you know if you if you look at Diageo, it's, it's it's clubbed into the same section of of companies as Unilever is in terms of quality, dependability, pays a good dividend, got good cash flow. And at the moment, Diageo is delivering a lot more than, than Unilever is. And if you look at the way this business is being run, and you look at the, you know, you see the rationalisation of the drinks portfolio. This is then getting reinvested back into, you know, marketing spend is going up in this company. They're investing in marketing and it's coming, it's driving sales. There's probably still a bit more work to do here. It's driving margin and it's, and it's keeping the returns on investment and the profit margin. The profit margin in this business is incredibly high, over 30%. Getting close to thirty five percent. But I guess the question with quality shares, I mean genuine quality shares like like D'Angelo, who are still demonstrating those quality characteristics, is how much you're gonna pay for it. Yeah, I mean Unilever is gonna cost you about twenty times forward earnings. Diageo Seems punchy in light of the revenue growth. Yeah, and Diageo is twenty two. Which seems cheap compared to Unilever. I don't know about cheap, but, <laughs> well, but more reasonable. But you know, if I look at you know, if we sort of Valuation's important. If we look at the underlying assets that we're buying or looking to buy, if you're an investor trying to trying to play this theme, Diageo is definitely ticking a lot more boxes than Unilever. It, it seems to be in a sweet spot. And we, I mean, I wrote about Diageo in the magazine a few months ago, and the the genuine bit of of genuine sense sales momentum in this business, um, which seems to be building momentum and gaining almost a sort of feel of sustainability about it for the next few years, which Unilever's not. Unilever seems to be getting weaker from a sales point of view, whereas Diageo seems to be getting stronger. Yeah. And um, I just just think that if you look at if you look at the markets that Diageo is in, they they're all growing. You know, in terms of profitability, it's across the board. Um, you know, there's a decent, decent Asian exposure. The, the American market might still—that's a tough market. Always, always has been. I, mean, I covered this years ago, and I, I, America was always difficult. Yeah, always difficult for you uh, for Diageo. But you know, 
UK, I mean, if you look at if you look at where it's making its money, the if you if you look at the things like the gin market in the UK, absolutely storming. I mean, yeah, the, uh, we we talked about the uh, the sales growth there of Tanqueray. Yeah, yeah, massive. And, and 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 I guess on the basis of that, you can understand why Fever Tree has done so well in this this market. See, we won't talk about Fever no, Tree because we, we have done we've done uh, too much, very much so over the past few weeks. But Diageo, if you're looking you know, dividend up by five percent, that's not that's not. You know, great level of dividend growth, but it's the dependability. If I was to sum this up, you look at Unilever and you look at Diageo this morning as an investor, and you look at why you own these kind of stocks. You own them for dependability, something you can tuck away, sleep quite nicely at night, you've got a reasonable dividend and growth. If I'm an investor in Diageo, I'm probably going to sleep a little bit better than 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 an investor in Unilever tonight. But I'm not going to lose any sleep. Too much sleep owning Unilever. I mean, just 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 looking down the list. I mean, there's there's some very good companies on here. Really yeah. fantastic companies. Yeah. I mean, there are some questions over some of the Fever Tree is on there, for example. Yeah. We have some questions over that. Yeah. Um, how to joinery? Just spent a lot of money with them. Love the business. Yeah. Not sure about the UK um, cycle, but hey, what can you do? Uh, Domino's Pizza is on there and yeah. i know you've written a bit for your alpha report this week yeah we've got some real concerns about this business so yeah. it comes out as a quality stock on the on the screen as it were it but... was the case study in my book oh yeah of course it was it was the case study in my book of a quality business yeah not looking quite as quality as it perhaps was when you wrote that film. Oh, definitely yeah, yeah. <laughs> guilty talk, as charged talk us through what, what what's happening here bottom line is no one really really is quite sure um but there's a lot of noise um in the background there's a lot of press articles um about how Domino's is a franchise business so it it owns the master franchise to run Domino's pizza in the UK, Ireland and certain European countries the UK is the dominant part of it and it's reliant on people Taking on a franchise and running their running a local pizza franchise under the Domino's name, and they they buy their pizza ingredients from Domino's, and then they pay a percentage of their sales back to Domino's, and that's how Domino's makes money. Which is what they call system sales. Yeah. So, so the, the by far the biggest generator of profit for Domino's is not the franchise royalty; it's the selling of the pizza ingredients. The cheese, the bases, the tomatoes, the toppings. And from Domino's point of view, they want to sell as more. It doesn't matter how they go. If system sales, so the sales of all the pizzas of all the shops is going up, that's good. Because I'm getting more, I'm selling more ingredients, I'm making more margin on that. And that's happy days. The franchisees probably see this a different way because the way that Domino's is trying to go about selling more pizzas is by opening more stores in existing territories. It's something that's called splitting territories. And the best way to describe this is give you an example of a town which previously had two Domino's pizza shops, now has three. Now, in a growing town, growing population, that might work well. But in a, in a town which perhaps has not got a growing population, that you are cre- the, the argument here is that you are creating scope to really annoy your franchisees because 
that third shop starts taking sales off the first shop and the second shop. So what, what we do know is a lot of franchisees have more than one shop. So yeah. perhaps historically, you know, when they've tried to split split the uh, the franchise, it's gone to somebody who is already There's the franchisee. There's some very powerful franchisees out there. And this is the problem. Yeah. And But you see... It, there's now a conflict of interest between the profitability of the master franchiser, Domino's UK, and the profitability of the franchisees. And Domino's gives a like-for-like like sales figure for the last quarter of 2018 of 4.5% in the UK. But it's before the impact of splitting stores, which will reduce that like-for-like like figure. So when it started... Splitting territories 12 months, 18 18 months ago, it actually gave the effect of splitting. And obviously, it's a reduction in like-for-like sales. And it stopped giving people, giving investors that information. So we don't really know as outsiders what's going on. And then there's another there's another issue to throw into the mix. So it's not we don't know what's going to happen to the profitability of the franchisees from splitting territories. The other thing, if you look at the Sunday Times has been running a lot of stories over the last six to nine months. And it's what it's saying is that these franchisees are getting a bit grumpy about how Domino's passes on the food inflation cost. So if the price of cheese goes up, Domino's franchisees get a higher bill. But if the price of cheese goes down, perhaps the question is, is Domino's keeping too much of that for itself? I'll I put only cheese reviews. That kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And the company is trying to talk this down, um, but it, but is, but it's clear that you know this is not this, this is this is not just the only issue because we've got this we've got this now cloudy picture of the core UK business. But then we have the European business, which was seen to be another leg of growth, is faltering or has faltered. Where they have a lot of they have a lot they have franchises in um, they have the master franchises in uh, Iceland. Ger- Germany was the big one. Germany they got uh, yep, yeah, and then they've got Switzerland and Norway is the other big one. And the Norwegian business has caused a lot of problem. And the like-for-like like sales performance in places like Norway uh, and and, uh, and Switzerland um, is not is not going very well. And the European business as a whole now is going to lose three or four million pounds this mm. year and probably break even next year. So this whole strategy of diversifying outside the UK, which was supposed to turbocharge the growth of the UK business, has come unstuck. And you're seeing that reflected in in, in the share price. Yeah, and we, I think we've got the shares on a sell, which and we have for a while. Yeah, and it's it's been a good call. It has actually. has been a good call. Um, I mean, I, I guess uh, I guess the, the the lesson here is that you know something may pop out of a of a screen that says this business is quality, but you have to really do a lot of digging to 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 assess that. Yeah. And you know, this, the same is true of Unilever and Diageo, which we've already we've already. Uh, gone and also, through. you know, things change. Yeah. You know, and quite quickly sometimes. Yeah, well. and it's, this is the whole thing. You're not dealing with something that's set in stone. 
you know, you're dealing with moving parts. I, I guess this is why, you, you know, you worry about the Ben Graham approach now because it's a, often a balance sheet, in fact, very much a balance sheet-based approach. But, but as you rightly point out in your piece, balance sheets are a snapshot in time and, you know, they, they can be a snapshot that's six months old and uh, tell you nothing about what a business looks like today. Yeah, I mean, for, ex- for example, you can have companies, young companies that have raised lots of cash and they're burning through that cash at a very rapid rate. So the last balance sheet where the the cash balance might be a large part of your net current asset value that Graham looked at is a lot lower than it than it was. Um, and, and I think you know, looking at looking at your piece, I mean, the, the, if you do a pure Graham screen now, you, you don't get much out of it. Certainly not anything uh, significant, not a substantial quality business. In fact, a lot of them are very, very small. Yeah, I think it comes with risk. Yeah. And I think if you make your money, you're, you're going to get compensated for that risk. Having said all of this, yes. Simon Thompson's bargain share screen is a Graham-based approach. Yeah. Uh, although you question whether it's a pure Graham-based approach. Um, and it has done really well. And um, I, I, mean, I can only explain that by, by suggesting that he does the screen. And then does a lot more work on top of that, which I guess is what you have to do yeah, to make yeah. a grand screen work today. Yeah, I think you know Simon is not Simon's not picking his shares just on the basis of numbers. No, absolutely not. No, I mean he does, which, he, which is something that I totally agree with. You he, should, you know, investing by numbers is you know quite a dangerous game. I, I would entirely agree. I mean, it's something we've been talking about in the office a lot, and that's you know business analysis should almost come before any in fact it should absolutely become before anything else before you even start yeah. looking at the numbers yeah you look at the businesses and then you then you look for the numbers to try and confirm or reject what you think about the business or what the business is telling you about itself what yeah. the, 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 yeah. the the story that, yeah. that a company is telling to the market i mean the number the numbers certain numbers like profit margin or return can give you an indication that you're looking at either a very good or very bad business and then you have to then check whether that's right. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, bargain shares. I mean, it's done well. I mean, it's, it's incredible actually. And uh, I mean, Simon's been doing this for twenty years now. Uh, and the average one-year return of the bargain shares portfolio is twenty point eight percent. Buffetesque. Buffetesque. Well, there you go. It doesn't work every year, of course. When you know, and but I'm nothing sure does. Nothing does, and you know, where we have a bad year, we get we get dog's abuse for it yeah but that's that's the market for you but yeah. it, over time and actually you know I, I think the thing you said about cigar butt investing which is why perhaps Simon's approach is not pure cigar butt investing yeah. is that actually if you go back to some of the years uh, you know in fact go back to a portfolio say you know five years ago they tend to keep going they, they tend to be sort of you know genuine value um, so yeah just to finally come back on this is that there probably are certain bits of the cheap value investing that are more i think asset investing via asset values is very hard mm. i think if you're going to invest by profits or low valuations of profits low pe ratios which i think is what simon's doing well, he does both doesn't he? he looks at the asset yeah, banking I mean, and then and then he and then he looks at the other metrics that, uh, that support that yeah and of course if you're looking at things like profit uh property companies banks financials then obviously assets do come into it I have some sympathy to the view that you you can still pick low PE shares or depressed shares where there's a recovery and make and make money. Yeah. Although having said that, a lot of the, the, the shares Simon Simon has picked, I wouldn't say they're recovery shares. That's no, uh, no. They 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 kind of look like 
depressed depressed valuations. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, I, I won't tell you them, but you know, a house builder, for example, has had a has has had a torrid time over the last yeah. year for for for, yeah. for obvious reasons. There you go. Anyway, uh, thank you, thank you, Phil. I mean, that's a fascinating discussion, actually. That's it. That's it. Investing cracks. <laughs> um, we've got lots more in the magazine this week. The results are starting to ramp up a little bit. Sex folks this, this week looking at the wealth management industry. Uh, and Holgate's Lansdowne had some results as well. They're, they're slightly different to a wealth manager, but there is some read across there. We have uh, a feature from James Norrington uh, looking at the, the latest updates from the US hedge fund industry, US asset management industry. Really useful stuff that we looked at a few months ago. We're going to do that regularly from now on to really get a view of, uh, 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 of some of the thinking behind the sort of biggest money managers uh, on the other side of the pond. All the usual comments. Uh, and news, including a big piece from Mr. Bearble on uh, what's going on in China, which actually has some uh, some links to, to James Norrington's piece. Uh, some really interesting news stories this week. Vodafone have had some results with some concerns around the dividend there. I know you don't like them, Phil. Um, we have a slightly different view in the magazine, but there you go. Uh, the bidding war for RPC, which is hotting up, and the absolute... Um, disaster zone that is fly b we've taken another look at anyway thank you for listening thank you phil for some fantastic insights there and we will be back again next week in the meantime bargain shares get over to your news agent pick that up four pound 90 uh, simon thompson's hidden value picks for 2019 and hope they'll do as well this year as they have done in the past thank you for listening